Good morning again, and welcome again. We are continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, taking the first of what will likely be several looks at verses 19 to 26 of chapter 3. Uh, one of the most important sections of the entire Roman letter, really, and in, uh, indeed of the entire New Testament in the view of many theologians. In chapter 3, Paul has been wrapping up a point that he's been making ever since verse 18 of chapter 1, namely that the whole world stands before God condemned by their own unrighteousness and as such is justifiably liable to the wrath and judgment of God. In the first eight verses of chapter 3, as part of this wrap-up, Paul dealt with some objections that either were being made or were anticipated by him as a result of the fairly strong arguments he was forced to use as he addressed his Jewish brothers and sisters. Then in verses 9 to 18, after making it clear that he still very much believed in God's real blessings on the Jewish people, which was no doubt one of the objections, he returns to his former argument, and his argument was that those blessings and advantages, not, notwithstanding, when it comes to having a righteous position before God, the Jews had no advantage whatsoever and were as guilty and as bad off as the Gentiles were. That's essentially what verses 9 to 18 are all about. And with that, Paul is ready now to kind of turn the corner and to start heading in a new direction. He's ready to return to a truth that he actually introduced uh, all the way back in chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17, the righteousness of God. He's going to be spending a lot of time talking about that over the next number of verses. But he only introduced it back in chapter 1 briefly uh, because before he dove into that glorious truth of the righteousness of God, which is completely unmerited, yet freely given, but before he dove into that truth, he wanted to make sure that his hearers, Jews and non-Jews, all of them understood their deep need for a righteousness that only God could supply. To put it another way, before he described the cure in great detail, he wanted his readers to know that they all had the disease. Well, he's taking care of that now, The bad news has been delivered and no one has been spared. And so, as a first step in expanding upon the good news, as he begins to explain more fully and deeply about the righteousness of God, in 3.19 and following, he starts out by making it clear that the righteousness he is talking about and is about to start explaining, and which everyone needs, is not a righteousness that comes through any sort of keeping or possessing of the law of God. It's another kind of righteousness. That's essentially what we'll be looking at this morning together. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father in heaven, please grant us now the particular mercy of your kindly assisting us in understanding what we ought to be able to grasp easily, but which because of our sin and its consequences, we cannot. Please be our guide and teacher and rebuker and comforter 
and whatever else you need to be for us right now in this moment. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to deal with this whole passage in one hit, but I want to read the section to you as a whole. Romans three nineteen to 26. This is the only flawless thing that will be said this morning. Everything else is subject to great error. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, as we begin but not conclude an extended look at this whole section this morning, a legitimate place to start is by asking the question, to whom is Paul speaking primarily here? If you recall, he had in view the Gentiles, the non-Jews, in chapter 1, 18 to 32. And then he had primarily in view the Jews from chapter 2, verse 1 onward. And in one sense, he still has the Jews in his sights here, especially as you see how he starts in verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. When Paul says, we, there... I think he's thinking of himself grouped together with his Jewish brothers and sisters and he's stating something that he feels would be both obvious and readily agreed to by all parties involved. That is, that the law was given to and for and applicable to a particular people, the Jews, and therefore had something to say to them. Whatever else it might say, whoever else might be addressed in the law, the ones to whom it was originally and intentionally given are meant to be its primary recipients, and that was the Jewish people. Now, law here means more than the Ten Commandments, but seems likely a reference to the whole of the Old Testament Scriptures. And the reason for concluding this is simply that he's just unloaded in verses 9 to 18 a whole chain of Scripture references and allusions drawn from a number of different places in the Old Testament, such as Psalms and Isaiah, etc. And as part of his making a particular point to the Jewish people. And so right on the heels of quoting all these Old Testament scriptures, he says, now we know that whatever the law says. So at any rate, Paul's point here, I believe, is a reiteration of what he said in that previous section, verses 9 to 18, when he took those passages that the Jewish Jews in his day had likely used to point out the unrighteousness of non-Jewish people. He took those same passages and turned them back on the Jews. 
Paul was using those very same scriptures as part of his concluding indictments of his own people. It was as if he was saying, look, those passages that you have taken and have always regarded as only have a relevance for the Gentiles, those apply to you too. You do the same things. You're guilty of the same things. That's what I think is going on here. Paul's essentially reminding the Jews that the scriptures were given to them. Were intended to have an impact on them. To cause them to see things about themselves and their own sin. The scriptures weren't given to them so they could have ammunition to use against non-Jews. They weren't given to them to serve as a kind of spotter's guide. You know what a spotter's guide is, right? That's a book that helps you identify and categorize things you're looking for. Usually wildlife, like birds or trees or flowers or mushrooms. Visitors from another planet or something. It's a handy little guidebook that fits in your pocket. and helps you identify things. I was once given a spotter's guide for Elvis by a funny friend who I think secretly believed that the king was still out there, just well hidden along with JFK and Marilyn Monroe and James Dean. But that's what a spotter's guide is and does. And that's one thing that for a certain proportion of the Jewish population, the scriptures seem to have become a kind of spotter's guide for really awful people out there. When really it was given, among other reasons, to serve as a mirror in which they would see not others primarily, but themselves. And and their position before a loving yet holy God. It's as if Paul is saying here, this thing that you've been using to point out and in in ways glory, in some ways glory in the flaws and ungodliness of others, it's talking about you. The law is given to those who are under the law, that is, to those who ostensibly are meant to line up with it, who claim some kind of allegiance to it. And he's trying to remind them of that. And unless we too quickly maybe pay out on the silly Jewish people in Paul's day for doing these sort of things or having this kind of attitude, let's think about our own situation. I mean, how easy is it for us to do the same thing ourselves? Whenever we come across those parts of the Scriptures that are directly addressing a particular sin or sins, how easy it is for us to shift gears and think about all the examples out there of how this is true in other people, in other situations. And the more serious the sin, the more likely we are to do this very thing. I mean, how many Bible studies have you been to where whenever these sorts of passages are discussed, the examples offered are always of other people? Or if we can't think of an actual example, we come up with a hypothetical one, anything except perhaps starting by looking at ourselves and asking, how am I a perpetrator of this particular sin? How is my own heart as guilty of this or as prone to this as the next person? What examples could I offer from my own life Of this very thing. I can tell you to my shame and sadness. That I spent a significant portion of my early Christian life. Probably the first 15 years of my Christian life. Including well after I'd finished seminary. And been ordained as a pastor. But I spent a great deal of time seeing and using the scriptures in this very way. As a book that was usually talking about someone else. And occasionally about me. 
You can tell a lot about where a person is and how well they've understood the Scriptures in general, and the Gospel in particular, and especially how well they've understood their own heart or not, by how they respond when the Bible talks about the human condition in our sin and brokenness. Whenever you come across those places in the Scriptures where sin is exposed and addressed and the typical patterns that you can think of, lots of examples out there, but very few, if any, in here, If that's your pattern, if that's your M.O., then you're doing the same thing that many of Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters were doing. And you are just as deeply out of touch with the Scriptures and the state of your own heart as they were. You might be in and around and near these things, but at the end of the day, you're just circling the airport. You are missing the point. So we turn to the original question, to whom is Paul speaking at this juncture? The first answer is to say that from one perspective, Paul is speaking to the Jews. He still has his brothers and sisters in view. However, notice the last part of verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul's still addressing the Jews, but the effect, the purpose, the intention of this address is to stop every mouth. And to render the whole world accountable to God. And the question is, how does that happen? If Paul's addressing the Jews, if they're the ones who are primarily in his sights, how does he end up nailing everybody else? Piper's helpful. He says, if this is what happened among the sinful people who had the greatest, sorry, among the people who had the greatest advantages, if the Jewish people are so sinful, even with all those advantages, that the holy, just, good, and spiritual law of God can by itself only awaken sin and rebellion in them rather than faith, then there's no reason to believe that the rest of the world would respond any better. So the lesson of Israel's response to the law is that every mouth is stopped and all the world is guilty before God. If Israel can't be justified by the works of the law, nobody can. It's like in its analogy that by definition inevitably breaks down at various points, so bear with me for using it. But it's like standing on the deck of a ship that's sinking in rough seas and off in the faint distance is a dim silhouette of a coastline and on board is an Olympic long-distance swimmer who makes an attempt to get to the shore. So he dives in and makes a valiant effort, but after a while, after making pretty good progress, he eventually succumbs, cannot swim any further, and drowns. If he can't make it with all his advantages and training, it would seem fair to conclude that everyone else who might jump in the water to make the coastline would not do any better. In fact, they would drown too, just more quickly. That seems to be the idea here. So to whom is Paul speaking? In the first instance, the Jews, but ultimately to everybody. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing I want you to draw your attention to is the references made here to the law in verses 19 and 20, to this phrase, works of the law, in verse 20. Listen again for those references. Now we know that whatever the law says... Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we've already seen Paul's reference to the law here as a reference to the whole of the Scriptures, not just a subset of them. But essentially, he's referring to the totality of what God has given them and revealed to them. What God has said to them about everything. 
And what he's clarifying here is what this law was given for, what its purpose is, what its role is, uh, what role it's supposed to be playing. And the reason he's clarifying the role of the law is because there's apparently some real confusion as to what the law was for and how it was to be seen and used and what was the purpose and point of abiding by it. We've already seen this morning the purpose of the law certainly wasn't to function as some kind of spotter's guide by which the Jews could identify the sinfulness of others. But Paul has more to say than just that. In verses 19 and 20, Paul tells us at least three things about the law. He tells us clearly one thing that the law does not and cannot do, and he tells us just as clearly two things that the law can and does do. Let's start by looking at what the law does not or cannot do. We see it there in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Simply put, the law does not provide a person with a means of making himself or herself right with God by adhering to it and thus gaining favor. And the reason Paul says this as blatantly as he does is because clearly there was that perspective out there. Now some theologians who want to say that among the Jews there was no such perspective of works-based righteousness have challenged this position fairly recently, but at the end of the day, there are just too many things said by Paul and others that just don't make any sense unless this view really was out there, and it was. And so as I indicated in the introduction, right before he launches into this extended discussion of the righteousness of God, Paul is kind of clearing the table here. He wants it to be understood that when he talks about righteousness, he's not thinking about the kind that might come through law-keeping. Paul knows that that sort of approach to righteousness ultimately does not work. But why doesn't it work? Why doesn't the law provide a means by which people can, by adhering to it, put themselves into a right standing with God? Well, there are things that Paul says in some other letters on that subject which could be mentioned here. But the reason he supplies in this letter is the one which we should be most interested in, it seems to me. And it's right there in the verse. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since or because, here's the reason, through the law comes knowledge of sin. The reason Paul supplies here as to why the law of God is not a means by which people can justify themselves is because it is through the law that the knowledge of sin comes. What's he mean by that? What's he getting at there? For one thing, Paul's not just talking about information. He's not just saying that the law informs people about sin by identifying it. Uh, uh, like a dictionary. He's not giving us a taxonomy of sin, although it certainly does that. He has more in mind here. What Paul has in mind is the fact that the law of God, not because it is bad, but because we are sinful, but the law of God evokes a sinful response. Listen to what Paul says later on, and we'll look at it more in detail then, but he says this later on in chapter 7 of this same letter, Romans. What shall we then say that the law is sin, by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. 
For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, I died. The very commandments that promised life proved to be death to me. An evangelical Anglican archbishop in Sydney told this story of how one day he boarded a downtown train that was going to take him out to the suburbs. And as he sat down on the train, he looked up and right in front of him on the wall were all these notices and information about what was, one was not supposed to be doing when you were riding a train. And as he scanned the wall in front of him, there was this big sign in bold letters that said, No Spitting. And this uh, archbishop, very proper elderly Anglican archbishop said, As soon as I saw the words, no spitting, I could feel the saliva forming in my mouth. That's sort of the idea that I think Paul is getting at. Because of our sin natures, we respond at times to the law with an active resistance. It's as if we feel more drawn than ever to do something when we're told we're not supposed to. You're walking uh, in a public park and you come across a sign that says stay off the grass and something within you is just dying to jump that little barrier and just get all in the midst of it. And that's part of what the law does for us and within us. It reveals sin, not just by telling us what it is, It lets us know what the boundaries are and what sin looks like, but it also reveals sin in us. You could say it reveals sin and sinfulness as it evokes a response from us that, we, that shows that we really do want to do as we please, regardless of the law. As Piper puts it, it awakens resistance, not faith. It brings out sin. It doesn't overcome sin. That's one thing the law does. It brings the knowledge of sin objectively out there as well as subjectively in here. We realize we're full of it. We're full of it. And that's one reason why, and there are others, it can never serve as a means of obtaining righteousness. Not because there's anything wrong with the law, as Paul will demonstrate in chapter 7, but because there's everything wrong with us and how we respond to it. Which leads to the second thing that the law does. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. What is the second thing the law does? It renders the whole world accountable to God. How does it do that? By stopping every mouth. The language scholars tell us that the words used here suggest the imagery of a courtroom where a person is brought to the witness stand after a case has been made against him or her, and the case is so strong and so complete and so clear that they're rendered speechless. There's nothing they can say in their defense. They have no excuse. Their mouths have been stopped. The law of God does that. Whatever the objection is, that might be raised, whether from the inhabitant of a primitive tribe in some remote part of the world where the light of the gospel has never shone, or from a university professor in an enlightened Western nation where religious freedom has ensured that the message of the gospel has been repeatedly heard, and everything in between, there will be no voice, there will be no voice that can be raised 
to challenge or invalidate the judgment of God upon all humanity for suppressing the knowledge of Him and the truth about Him. Every mouth will be stopped. The law of God makes the inexcusability of humanity clear, and it stops every mouth. It silences every potential objection, even objections from those who might claim they've never had the law or the advantage of the law. See Romans 1.20 and 2.15-16. In other words, God has an airtight argument against each one of us. Which does include you and me. It's the same idea behind the very familiar passage in Luke 18. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why does Jesus tell that parable? He says it very plainly, because there are people standing there right in front of him who are trusting in their own righteousness. Why did the Pharisee pray the way he did? Because he was one of those people. He thought he had a case before God, but he didn't. Why did the tax collector pray the way he did? Because he knew he had no case. He could only beg for mercy. And really, both of those men's mouths ultimately had been stopped. Both of those men had been rendered accountable for God, but so far only one of them knew it. Eventually, the other one would come to know it. But that's what the law does, says Paul. It renders us accountable. It shows us all to be guilty before God. It takes away our excuses. Indeed, it renders our excuses more and more ridiculous. That's certainly been the case for me. I can tell you, I am a far worse person since I have received and understood the Scriptures than I ever was without them. And that's because I had a wrong-headed, uninformed view of myself that the Scriptures just blew away and continues to blow away such that as more time goes by, the better I understand the Scriptures, the more wicked I become in a sense, partially because I better understand the layers and layers of my sin and the nuances of my sin. And the more clearly I see those things, the more the thought of me attempting to make any case before God other than please be merciful just seems utterly absurd. And praise God, He has been merciful. And that mercy has a name, and that name is Jesus. And if I could leave you with just one thing from this passage to take away and consider and respond to, it's this. It's this awesome, awful truth that the law really does bring the knowledge of sin. It really does render the whole world accountable to God and without excuse. That's an awesome truth, and it's a terrible truth, all at the same time. Because what it means is that everybody you know, every single person you know is accountable to God. 
everybody in your family, everyone in your neighborhood, your school, your place of work, the person at the checkout line, the grocery store, the person you order food from at the restaurant, the person standing on the side of the road holding a sign looking for work, all the people in Syria and China, Uganda and Australia, the people in prison, the people guarding them, your doctor, your dry cleaner, everybody is accountable before God. And in this accounting, in this reckoning, everybody's guilty. There are no neutral people. There's no neutral position. There's no safe place for anybody in this reckoning. There's no innocent bystanders. Paul says the whole world, and he means it, whole world. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that diagnosis? The first thing you could do is accept it. You can accept that it's true, that the whole world is accountable, which includes you, and act accordingly. You can admit your sin, your guilt, your unrighteousness in God's eyes, your need of forgiveness and mercy, and you can ask for it and place your confidence in the only form of righteousness available to you. It's the kind that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did through His life and death in your place and on your behalf. The other thing you can do is not only accept the diagnosis personally, but you can also publish the diagnosis. You can share this truth with all these people I've just mentioned that come across your path all the time. God's already put them in your world. He's already put them in your life by no accident. You don't even have to go out of your way to see them. You don't have to find a single stranger. They're already there, already in your world, in your life. Of course, it's not a popular sort of thing to be saying to people, be informing them of their true position before a holy God and their need of forgiveness and mercy. It's quite likely to be misheard. Probably most often will be misheard and misinterpreted. It's kind of like the guy who was racing down a country road one day in his convertible and the dust is flying and he's having the time of his life and he could see that a curve was approaching. So he slowed down somewhat to take the turn. As he got closer, he saw this person standing on the side of the road with his hands cupped to his mouth. He got nearer and he was just coming past him. He distinctly heard the guy say, Pig! Well, the driver was disgusted, took great offense to this insult and pressed down the accelerator, powered into the curve, whipped around the corner and ran right into the pig. Sometimes we try telling people about themselves and us that we really are sinners and really do need the forgiveness and mercy that only God can provide. Sometimes we tell people those things and what they hear is an insult. They think we're being offensive. Think we're just trying to tear them down or hurt them, but really what we're trying to do is help them avoid a disaster. We really can't manage how people will respond to us. We can only respond to the truth that we know and to the commission we've been given with confidence in a God who goes before us, who does all things well, completely capable of opening any eye and any ear at any time. He doesn't require special conditions. They don't have to be at a bad spot in their life. They don't have to be at a point of weakness. None of that has to be true.
God's completely capable of opening eyes and ears so that people can hear the truth even when we feel like we've done a very poor job of laying it out. I've seen people converted after what I would have considered one of the most woeful gospel presentations I'd ever heard. And they were genuinely converted and God shut me up. We can say what we know. And what we know is this. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what we know. So let's pray that God will give us the courage and the faith and the grace to act like we know. Let's pray. Father, we uh, marvel at the way that you work, at your kindness to us, your mercy, your amazing patience with us. Please help us to respond well to the things that you show us in your word, even in including the things that we see before us this morning. Help us to embrace the reality about ourselves, the things that your word, your law has clearly shown us. Help us to believe what you say when you tell us that everybody's accountable. And um, you really are holy and just. And there really is a day coming when all that's going to be worked out. Help us to believe you, Father, enough to get past our fears, um, our crazy desire to want the approval of everybody more than uh, we want to honor you. Uh, Help us to have the courage in the moment uh, to speak things that we've maybe been reluctant to speak to people for a long time. Give us... uh, wisdom too to do so in ways that are loving that are winsome and yet which do not compromise what we know to be true help us to be willing Father to risk the consequences of being your ambassadors rather than uh, simply remaining uh, silent And certainly we should speak. I pray this as much, if not more, for myself and for anyone else in this room. I thank you, Father, that you are are merciful. And that your grace and mercy covers even this, even these times when uh, 
in our fear and our shame. We will not stand up for the one who died for us. Make us, Father, uh, your willing vessels. Please uh, use us. Please work through us to draw people to yourself, to see and embrace this very same gospel that we sing about, that they might sing about it too. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will do that at this time.